0: Chapter Fourteen of the Border Legion by Zane Grey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Joan's opportunity for watching Kells and his men and overhearing their colloquies was as good as it had been back in Cabin Gulch, but it developed that where Kells had been open and frank, he now became secret and cautious. She was aware that men, singly and in couples, visited him during the early hours of the night and they had conferences in low earnest tones she could peer out of her little window and see dark silent forms come up from the ravine at the back of the cabin and leave the same way none of them went round to the front door where batewood smoked and kept guard joan was able to hear only scraps of these earnest talks and from part of one she gathered that for some reason or other kells desired to bring himself into notice alder creek must be made to know that a man of importance had arrived it seemed to joan that this was the very last thing which kells ought to do what magnificent daring the bandit had famous years before in california with a price set upon his life in nevada and now the noted if unknown leader of border robbers in idaho he sought to make himself prominent respected and powerful joan found that in spite of her horror at the sinister and deadly nature of the bandits enterprise she could not avoid an absorbing interest in his fortunes next day joan watched for an opportunity to tell jim cleve that he might come to her little window any time after dark to talk and plan with her no chance presented itself, Joan wore the dress she had made to the evident pleasure of Batewood and Pierce. They had conceived as strong an interest in her fortunes as she had in Kells's. Wood nodded his approval, and Pierce said she was a lady once more. Strange it was to Joan that this villain Pierce, whom she could not have dared trust, grew open in his insinuating hints of Kells's blackguardism. Strange, because Pierce was absolutely sincere. When Jim Cleve did see Joan in her dress the first time, he appeared so glad and relieved and grateful that she feared he might betray himself. So she got out of his sight. Not long after that, Kells called her from her room. He wore a somber and thoughtful cast of countenance red pearce and jesse smith were standing at attention cleve was sitting on the threshold of the door and wood leaned against the wall is there anything in the pack of stuff i bought you that you could use for a veil asked kells of joan yes she replied get it he ordered and your hat too joan went to her room and returned with the designated articles the hat being that which she had worn when she left Hodley. "'That'll do. Put it on over your face, and let's see how you look.' Joan complied with this request, all the time wondering what Kells meant. "'I wanted to disguise you, but not to hide your youth. Your good looks,' he said, and he arranged it differently about her face. There. You'd sure make any man curious to see you now. Put on the hat.' Joan did so. Then Kells appeared to become more forcible. "'You're to go down into the town. Walk slow as far as the last nugget. Cross the road and come back. Look at every man you meet or see standing by. Don't be in the least frightened. Pierce and Smith will be right behind you. They'd get to you before anything could happen. Do you understand?' "'Yes,' replied Joan. Red Pierce stirred uneasily. "'Jack!' "'I'm thinking some rough talk will come her way,' he said darkly. "'We've shut up,' replied Kells, in quick passion. He resented some implication. "'I've thought of that. She won't hear what's said to her.' "'Here,' and he turned again to Joan. "'Take some cotton or anything, and stuff up your ears. Make a good job of it.' Joan went back to her room and, looking about for something, with which to execute Kells's last order, she stripped some soft, woolly bits from a fleece-lined piece of cloth. With these she essayed to deaden her hearing. Then she returned. Kells spoke to her, but though she seemed dully to hear his voice, she could not distinguish what he said. She shook her head. With that Kells waved her out upon her strange errand joan brushed against cleve as she crossed the threshold what would he think of this she would not see his face when she reached the first tense she could not resist the desire to look back pierce was within twenty yards of her and smith about the same distance farther back joan was more curious than anything else she divined that kells wanted her to attract attention but for what reason She was at a loss to say. It was significant that he did not intend to let her suffer any indignity while fulfilling this mysterious mission. Not until Joan got well down the road toward the last nugget did anyone pay any attention to her. A Mexican jabbered at her, showing his white teeth, flashing his slow black eyes. Young miners eyed her curiously, and some of them spoke she met all kinds of men along the plank walk most of whom passed by apparently unobserving she obeyed kells to the letter but for some reason she was unable to explain when she got to the row of saloons where lounging evil-eyed rowdies accosted her she found she had to disobey him at least in one particular she walked faster still that did not make her task much easier it began to be an ordeal the farther she got the bolder men grew could it have been that kells wanted this sort of thing to happen to her joan had no idea what these men meant but she believed that was because for the time being she was deaf assuredly their looks were not a compliment to any girl joan wanted to hurry now and she had to force herself to walk at a reasonable gait One persistent fellow walked beside her for several steps. Joan was not fool enough not to realize now that these wayfarers wanted to make her acquaintance, and she decided she would have something to say to Kells when she got back. Below the last nugget she crossed the road and started upon the return trip. In front of this gambling hell there were scattered groups of men, standing and going in. A tall man, in black, detached himself and started out as if to intercept her. He wore a long black coat, a black bow tie, and a black sombrero. He had little, hard, piercing eyes, as black as his dress. He wore gloves and looked immaculate compared with the other men. He too spoke to Joan, turned to walk with her. She looked straight ahead now, frightened, and she wanted to run he kept beside her apparently talking joan heard only the low sound of his voice then he took her arm gently but with familiarity joan broke from him and quickened her pace say there leave that girl alone this must have been yelled for joan certainly heard it she recognized red Pierce's voice and she wheeled to look Pierce had overhauled the gambler and already men were approaching involuntarily joan halted what would happen the gambler spoke to pierce made what appeared deprecating gestures as if to explain but pierce looked angry i'll tell her daddy he shouted joan waited for no more she almost ran there would surely be a fight could that have been kells's intention whatever it was she had been subjected to a mortifying and embarrassing affront she was angry and she thought it might be just as well to pretend to be furious kells must not use her for his nefarious schemes she hurried on and to her surprise when she got in sight of the cabin both Pierce and smith had almost caught up with her jim cleve sat where she had last seen him also kells was outside the way he strode to and fro showed joan his anxiety there was more to this incident than she could fathom she took the padding from her ears to her intense relief and soon reaching the cabin she tore off the veil and confronted kells wasn't that a-a fine thing for you to do she demanded furiously and with the outburst she felt her face blazing if i'd any idea what you meant you couldn't have driven me i trusted you and you sent me down there on some shameful errand of yours you're no gentleman joan realized that her speech especially the latter part was absurd but it had a remarkable effect upon kells his face actually turned red he stammered something and halted seemingly at a loss for words how singularly the slightest hint of any act or word of hers that approached a possible respect or tolerance worked upon this bandit. He started toward Joan, appealingly, but she passed him in contempt and went to her room. She heard him cursing Pierce in a rage, evidently blaming his lieutenant for whatever had angered her. "'But you wanted her,' insulted, protested Pierce hotly. "'You mullethead!' roared Kells. "'I wanted some man, any man.' just to get near enough to her so i could swear she'd been insulted you let her go through that camp to meet real insult why pierce i've a mind to shoot you shoot retorted pierce i obeyed your orders as i saw them and i want to say right here that when it comes to anything concerning this girl you're plumb off your nut that's what and you can like it or lump it i've said it before You'd split over this girl, and I say it now. Through the door, Joan had a glimpse of Cleve stepping between the angry men. This seemed unnecessary, however, for Pierce's stinging assertion had brought Kells to himself. There were few more words, too low for Joan's ears, and then, accompanied by Smith, the three started off, evidently for the camp. Joan left her room, and watched them from the cabin door. Bate Wood sat outside, smoking. "'I'm declaring my hand,' he said to Joan, feelingly. "'I'd never have stood for that scurvy trick. Now, miss, this is the toughest camp I've ever seen. I mean tough as a women. For it ain't begun to fan guns and steal gold yet.' "'Why did Kells want me insulted?' asked Joan well he's got to have a reason for raising an awful fuss replied wood fuss sure replied wood dryly what for so we can walk out on the stage rejoined wood evasively it's mighty strange said joan i reckon all about mr kells is some strange these days red pierce had it correct kells is going to split on you what do you mean by that "'Well, he'll go one way and the gang another.' "'Why?' asked Joan earnestly. "'Miss, there's some lot of reasons,' said Wood deliberately. First, he did for Halloway and Bailey, "'not because they wanted to treat you as he meant to, "'but just because he wanted to be alone. "'We were all wise that you shot him "'and that you wasn't his wife. "'And since then we've seen him gradually lose his nerve. "'He organized his legion "'and made his plan to run this Alder Creek Red. "'He still hangs on to you. "'He'll kill any man that batted an eye at you. "'And through all this, because he's not Jack Kells of old, "'he's lost his pull with the gang. "'Sooner or later he'll split.' "'Have I any real friends among you?' asked Joan. "'Well, I reckon. "'Are you my friend Batewood?' she went on in sweet wistfulness the grizzled old bandit removed his pipe and looked at her with a glint in his bloodshot eyes i sure am i'll sneak you off now if you'll go i'll stick a knife in kells if you say so oh no i'm afraid to run off and you needn't harm kells after all he's good to me good to you why he keeps you captive like an indian would when he's given me orders to watch you keep you locked up Wood's snort of disgust and wrath was thoroughly genuine. Still, Joan knew that she dared not trust him any more than Pierce or the others. Their raw emotions would undergo a change if Kells's possession of her were transferred to them. It occurred to Joan, however, that she might use Wood's friendliness to some advantage. "So I'm going to be locked up," she asked. "You're supposed to be." without anyone to talk to? Well, you'll have me when you want, and I reckon that ain't much to look forward to. But I can tell you a heap of stories. And when Kells ain't around, if you're careful not to get me catched, you can do as you want. Thank you, Bate. I'm going to like you, replied Joan sincerely. And then she went back to her room. There was sewing to do, and while she worked, she thought, so that the hours sped. When the light got so poor that she could sew no longer, she put the work aside and stood at her little window, watching the sunset. From the front of the cabin came the sound of subdued voices, probably Kells and his men had returned. She was sure of this when she heard the ring of Bate Wood's axe. All at once an object darker than the stones arrested Joan's gaze there was a man sitting on the far side of the little ravine instantly she recognized Jim cleve he was looking at the little window at her joan believed he was there for just that purpose making sure that no one else was near to see she put out her hand and waved it jim gave a guarded perceptible sign that he had observed her action and almost directly got up and left joan needed no more than that to tell her how jim's idea of communicating with her corresponded with her own that night she would talk with him and she was thrilled through the secrecy the peril somehow lent this prospect a sweetness a zest a delicious fear indeed she was not only responding to love but to daring to defiance to a wilder nameless element born of her environment and the needs of the hour Presently, Batewood called her in to supper. Pierce, Smith, and Cleve were finding seats at the table, but Kells looked rather sick. Joan observed him then more closely. His face was pale and damp, strangely shaded as if there were something dark under the pale skin. Joan had never seen him appear like this, and she shrank as from another and forbidding side of the man. Pearson Smith acted naturally, ate with relish, and talked about the gold diggings. Cleve, however, was not as usual, and Joan could not quite make out what constituted the dissimilarity. She hurried through her own supper and back to her room. Already it was dark outside. Joan lay down to listen and wait. It seemed long, but probably was not long, before she heard the men go outside. And the low thump of their footsteps as they went away. Then came the rattle and bang of Bate Wood's attack on the pans and pots. Bate liked to cook, but he hated to clean up afterward. By and by he settled down outside for his evening smoke, and there was absolute quiet. Then Joan rose to stand at the window. She could see the dark mass of rock overhanging the cabin, the bluff beyond, and the stars for the rest was all gloom. She did not have to wait long. A soft step, almost indistinguishable, made her pulse beat quicker. She put her face out of the window, and on the instant a dark form seemed to loom up to meet her out of the shadow. She could not recognize that shape, yet she knew it belonged to Cleve. "'Joan,' he whispered. "'Jim,' she replied, just as low and gladly. He moved closer so that the hand she had gropingly put out touched him, then seemed naturally to slip along to his shoulder, round his neck. And his face grew clearer in the shadow. His lips met hers, and Joan closed her eyes to that kiss. What hope, what strength for him and for her, now in that meeting of lips. "'Oh, Jim, I'm so glad to have you near to touch you,' she whispered. "'Do you still love me?' he whispered back tensely. "'Still? More, more. Say it, then. "'Jim, I love you.' And their lips met again and clung. And it was he who drew back first. "'Dearest, why didn't you let me make a break and get away with you before we came to this camp?' "'Oh, Jim, I told you I was afraid. We'd have been caught, and, Golden, we'll never have half the chance here.' kells means to keep you closely guarded i heard the order he's different now he's grown crafty and hard and the miners of this alder creek why i'm more afraid to trust them than men like wood or pierce they've gone clean crazy gold mad if you shouted for your life they wouldn't hear you and if you could make them hear they wouldn't believe this camp has sprung up in a night it's not like any place i've ever heard of it's not human it's so strange so oh i don't know what to say i think i mean that men in a great gold strike become like coyotes at a carcass you've seen that no relation at all i'm frightened too jim i wish i had the courage to run when we were back in cabin gulch but don't ever give up not for a second we can get away we must plan and wait, find out where we are, how far from Holdley, what we must expect, whether it's safe to approach anyone in this camp. Safe, I guess not, after today, he whispered grimly. Why, what happened? she asked quickly. Joan, have you guessed yet why Kells sent you down into the camp alone? No. Listen, I went with Kells and Smith and Pierce. They hurried straight to the last nugget. There was a crowd of men in front of the place. Pierce walked straight up to one, a gambler by his clothes. And he said in a loud voice, Here's the man. The gambler looked startled, turned pale, and went for his gun. But Kells shot him. He fell dead without a word. There was a big shout, then silence. Kells stood there with his smoking gun. I never saw the man so cool, so masterful then he addressed the crowd this gambler insulted my daughter my men here saw him my name is blight i came here to buy up gold claims and i want to say this your alder creek has got the gold but it needs some of your best citizens to run it right so a girl can be safe on the street joe and i tell you it was a magnificent bluff went on jim excitedly and it worked kells walked away amid cheers he meant to give an impression of character and importance he succeeded so far as i could tell there wasn't a man present who did not show admiration for him i saw that dead gambler kicked jim breathed joan he killed him just for that just for that the bloody devil but still what for oh it was cold-blooded murder no an even break kells made the gambler go for his gun i'll have to say that for kells it doesn't change the thing i've forgotten what a monster he is joan his motive is plain this new gold camp has not reached the blood-spilling stage yet it hadn't i should say the news of this killing will fly it'll focus minds on this claim buyer blight his deed rings true like that of an honest man with a daughter to protect. He'll win sympathy. Then he talks as if he were prosperous. Soon he'll be represented in this changing, growing population as a man of importance. He'll play the card for all he's worth. Meanwhile, secretly, he'll begin to rob the miners. It'll be hard to suspect him. His plot is just like the man. great jim oughtn't we tell whispered joan trembling i've thought of that somehow i seem to feel guilty but whom on earth could we tell we wouldn't dare speak here remember you're a prisoner i'm supposed to be a bandit one of the border legion how to get away from here and save our lives that's what tortures me something tells me we'll escape if only we can plan the right way jim i'll have to be penned here with nothing to do but wait you must come every night won't you for an answer he kissed her again jim what will you do meanwhile she asked anxiously i'm going to work a claim dig for gold i told kell so today and he was delighted he said he was afraid his men wouldn't like the working part of his plan it's hard to dig gold easy to steal it but i'll dig a hole as big as a hill wouldn't it be funny if i struck it rich jim you're getting the fever joan if i did happen to run into a gold pocket there's lots of them found would you marry me the tenderness the timidity and the yearning in cleve's voice told joan as never before how he had hoped and feared and despaired she patted his cheek with her hand and in the darkness with her heart swelling To make up for what she had done to him, she felt a boldness and a recklessness, sweet, tumultuous, irresistible. "'Jim, I'll marry you, whether you strike gold or not,' she whispered. And there was another blind, sweet moment. Then Cleve tore himself away, and Joan leaned at the window, watching the shadow, with tears in her eyes and an ache in her breast. From that day, Joan lived a life of seclusion in the small room. Kells wanted it so, and Joan thought best for the time being not to take advantage of Batewood's duplicity. Her meals were brought to her by Wood, who was supposed to unlock and lock her door, but Wood never turned the key in that padlock. Prisoner, though Joan was, the days and nights sped swiftly. Kells was always up till late in the night, and slept half of the next morning. It was his want to see Joan every day about noon. He had a care for his appearance. When he came in, he was dark, forbidding, weary, and cold. Manifestly, he came to her to get rid of the imponderable burden of the present. He left it behind him. He never spoke a word of Alder Creek, of gold, of the Border Legion. Always he began by inquiring for her welfare by asking what he could do for her, what he could bring her. Joan had an abhorrence of Kells in his absence that she never felt when he was with her, and the reason must have been that she thought of him, remembered him as the bandit, and saw him as another and growing character. Always mindful of her influence, she was as companionable, as sympathetic, as cheerful, and as sweet as it was possible for her to be slowly he would warm and change under her charm and the grim gloom the dark strain would pass from him when that left he was indeed another person frankly he told joan that the glimpse of real love she had simulated back there in cabin gulch was seldom out of his mind no woman had ever kissed him like she had that kiss had transfigured him It haunted him. If he could not win kisses like that from Joan's lips, of her own free will, then he wanted none. No other woman's lips would ever touch his. And he begged Joan, in the terrible earnestness of a stern and hungering outcast, for her love. And Joan could only sadly shake her head and tell him she was sorry for him, that the more she really believed he loved her, the surer she was that he would give her up. Then always he passionately refused he must have her to keep to look at as his treasure to dream over and hope against hope that she would love him some day women sometimes learn to love their captors he said and if she only learned then he would take her away to australia to distant lands but most of all he begged her to show him again what it meant to be loved by a good woman And Joan, who knew that her power now lay in her unattainableness, feigned a wavering reluctance, when in truth any surrender was impossible. He left her with the spirit that her presence gave him, in a kind of trance, radiant, yet with mocking smile, as if he foresaw the overthrow of his soul through her, and in the light of that his waning power over his legion was as nothing. In the afternoon he went down into the camp to strengthen the associations he had made, to buy claims and to gamble. Upon his return, Joan, peeping through a crack between the boards, could always tell whether he had been gambling, whether he had won or lost. Most of the evenings he remained in his cabin, which, after dark, became a place of mysterious and stealthy action. The members of his legion visited him sometimes alone never more than two together joan could hear them slipping in at the hidden aperture in the back of the cabin she could hear the low voices but seldom what was said she could hear these night prowlers as they departed afterward kells would have the lights lit and then joan could see into the cabin was that dark haggard man kells she saw him take little buckskin sacks full of gold dust and hide them under the floor then he would pace the room in his old familiar manner like a caged tiger later his mood usually changed with the advent of wood and pearson smith and cleve who took turns at guard and going down into camp then kells would join them in a friendly game for small stakes gambler though he was he refused to allow any game there that might lead to heavy wagering from the talk, sometimes Joan learned that he played for exceedingly large stakes with gamblers and prosperous miners, usually with the same result, a loss. Sometimes he won, however, and then he would crow over Pearson Smith and delight in telling them how cunningly he had played. Jim Cleve had his bed up under the bulge of bluff, in a sheltered nook. Kells had appeared to like this idea, for some reason, relative. To a scout system which he did not explain and cleve was happy about it because this arrangement left him absolutely free to have his nightly rendezvous with joan at her window sometime between dark and midnight her bed was right under the window if awake she could rest on her knees and look out and if she was asleep he could thrust a slender stick between the boards to awaken her but the fact was that joan lived for these stolen meetings and unless he could not come until very late she waited wide-eyed and listening for him then besides as long as kells was stirring in the cabin she spent her time spying upon him jim cleve had gone to an unfrequented part of the gulch for no particular reason and here he had located his claim the very first day he struck gold and kells more for advertisement than for any other motive had his men stake out a number of claims near cleve's and bought them then they had a little field of their own all found the rich pay dirt but it was cleve to whom the goddess of fortune turned her bright face as he had been lucky at cards so he was lucky at digging his claim paid big returns Kells spread the news, and that part of the gulch saw a rush of miners. Every night Joan had her whispered hour with Cleve, and each succeeding one was sweeter. Jim had become a victim of the gold fever, but having Joan to steady him, he did not lose his head. If he gambled, it was to help out with his part. He was generous to his comrades. He pretended to drink, but did not drink at all jim seemed to regard his good fortune as joan's also he believed if he struck it rich he could buy his sweetheart's freedom he claimed that kells was drunk for gold to gamble away joan let jim talk but she coaxed him and persuaded him to follow a certain line of behavior she planned for him she thought for him she influenced him to hide the greater part of his gold dust and let it be known that he wore no gold belt she had a growing fear that jim's success was likely to develop a temper in him inimical to the cool waiting tolerant policy needed to outwit kells in the end it seemed the more gold jim acquired the more passionate he became the more he importuned joan the more he hated kells gold had gotten into his blood and it was joan's task to keep him sane naturally She gained more by yielding herself to Jim's caresses than by any direct advice or admonishment. It was her love that held Jim in check. One night, the instant their hands met, Joan knew that Jim was greatly excited or perturbed. "'Joan,' he whispered thrillingly, with his lips at her ear, "'I've made myself solid with Kells. Oh, the luck of it!' "'Tell me,' whispered Joan, and she leaned against those lips. It was early tonight at the Nugget. I dropped in as usual. Kells was playing Pharaoh again with that gambler they call Flash. He's won a lot of Kells's gold, a crooked gambler. I looked on, and some of the gang were there Pierce, Blicky, Handy Oliver, and of course Golden, but all separated. Kells was losing and sore. But he was game. All at once he caught Flash in a crooked trick. And he yelled in a rage. He sure had the gang and everybody else looking. I expected, and so did all the gang, to see Kells pull his gun. But strange how gambling affects him. He only cursed Flash called him right. You know that's about as bad as death to a professional gambler in a place like Alder Creek. Flash threw a derringer on Kells. He had it up his sleeve. He meant to kill Kells and Kells had no chance. But Flash, having to drop, took time to talk to make his bluff go strong with the crowd. And that's where he made a mistake. I jumped and knocked the gun out of his hand. It went off, burned my wrist. Then I slugged Mr. Flash good. He didn't get up. Kells called the crowd around, and, showing the cards as they lay, coolly proved that Flash was what everybody suspected then kells said to me i'll never forget how he looked youngster he meant to do for me i never thought of my gun you see i'll kill him the next time we meet i've owed my life to men more than once i never forget you stood pat with me before and now you're ace high was it fair of you asked joan yes flash is a crooked gambler i'd rather be a bandit besides All's fair in love, and I was thinking of you when I saved Kells. Flash will be looking for you, said Joan, fearfully. Likely, and if he finds me, he wants to be quick, but Kells will drive him out of camp or kill him. I tell you Kells is the biggest man in Alder Creek. There's talk of office, a mayor, and all that. And if the miners can forget gold long enough, they'll elect Kells. But the riffraff these bloodsuckers who live off the miners they'd rather not have any office in alder creek and upon another night Cleve in serious and somber mood talked about the border legion and its mysterious workings the name had found prominence no one knew how and alder creek knew no more peaceful sleep the legion was supposed to consist of a strange secret band of unknown bandits and road agents drawing its members from all that wild and trackless region called the border. Rumor gave it a leader of cunning and ruthless nature. It operated all over the country at the same time, and must have been composed of numerous smaller bands, impossible to detect, because its victims never lived to tell how or by whom they had been robbed. This legion worked slowly and in the dark. It did not bother to rob for little game it had strange and unerring information of large quantities of gold dust two prospectors going out on the bannock road packing fifty pounds of gold were found shot to pieces a miner named black who would not trust his gold to the stage express and who left alder creek against advice were never seen or heard of again four other miners of the camp known to carry considerable gold were robbed and killed at night on their way to their cabins, and another was found dead in his bed. Robbers had crept to his tent, slashed the canvas, murdered him while he slept, and made off with his belt of gold. An evil day of blood had fallen upon Alder Creek. There were terrible and implacable men in the midst of the miners, by day at honest toil, learning who had gold, and murdering by night the camp had never been united but this dread fact disrupted any possible unity every man or every little group of men distrusted the other watched and spied and laid awake at night but the robberies continued one every few days and each one left no trace for dead men could not talk thus was ushered in at alder creek a regime of wildness that had no parallel in the earlier days of forty nine and fifty one men frenzied by the possession of gold or greed for it responded to the wildness of that time and took their cue from this deadly and mysterious border legion the gold lust created its own blood lust daily the population of alder creek grew in the new gold seekers and its dark records kept pace with distrust came suspicion and with suspicion came fear and with fear came hate and these in already distorted minds inflamed the hell so that the most primitive passions of mankind found outlet and held sway the operations of the border legion were lost in deeds done in the gambling dens in the saloons and on the street in broad day men fought for no other reason than that the incentive was in the charge there men were shot at gaming tables and the game went on men were killed in the dance halls dragged out marking a line of blood on the rude floor and the dance went on still the pursuit of gold went on more frenzied than ever and still the greater and richer claims were struck the price of gold soared and the commodities of life were almost beyond the dreams of avarice. It was a tune in which the worst of men's natures stalked forth, hydra-headed and death, roaring for gold, spitting fire, and shedding blood. It was a time when gold and fire and blood were one. It was a tune when a horde of men from every class and nation, of all ages and characters, met on a field where motives and ambitions and faiths and traits merged into one mad instinct of gain it was worse than the time of the medieval crimes of religion it made war seem a brave and honorable thing it robbed manhood of that splendid and noble trait always seen in shipwrecked men or those hopelessly lost in the barren north the divine will not retrograde to the savage it was a time for all it enriched the world with yellow treasure, when might was right, when men were hopeless, when death stalked rampant, the sun rose gold and it set red. It was the hour of gold. One afternoon late, while Joan was half dreaming, half dozing, the hours away, she was thoroughly aroused by the tramp of boots and loud voices of excited men. Joan slipped to the peephole in the partition batewood had raised a warning hand to kells who stood up facing the door red Pierce came bursting in wild-eyed and violent joan imagined he was about to cry out that kells had been betrayed kells have you heard he panted not so loud you replied kells coolly my name's blight who's with you only jesse and some of the gang i couldn't steer them away but there's nothing to fear What's happened? What haven't I heard? The camp's gone plumb, raving crazy. Jim Cleve found the biggest nugget ever dug in Idaho. Thirty pounds! Kells seemed suddenly to inflame, to blaze with white passion. Good for Jim, he yelled ringingly. He could scarcely have been more elated if he had made the strike himself. Jesse Smith came stamping in, with a crowd elbowing their way behind him. Joan had a start of the old panic at sight of Golden, for once the giant was not slow nor indifferent. His big eyes glared. He brought back to Joan the sickening sense of the brute strength of his massive presence. Some of his cronies were with him. For the rest, there were Blicky and Handy Oliver and Chick Williams. The whole group bore resemblance to a pack of wolves about to leap upon its prey yet in each man excepting Golden, there was that striking aspect of exaltation where's jim demanded kells he's coming along replied Pierce. he's sure been running a gauntlet his strike stopped work in the diggings what do you think of that kells the news spread like smoke before wind every last miner in camp has just got to see that lump of gold maybe i don't want to see it exclaimed kells a thirty pounder i heard of one once sixty pounds but i never saw it you can't believe till you see jim's coming up the road now said one of the men near the door that crowd hangs on but i reckon he's shaking them what will cleve do with this nugget golden's big voice so powerful yet feelingless caused a momentary silence the expression of many faces changed. Kells looked startled, then annoyed. "Why, Golden, that's not my affair nor yours," replied Kells. "Cleve dug it, and it belongs to him." "Dugger stole it's all the same," responded Golden. Kells threw up his hands, as if it were useless and impossible to reason with this man. Then the crowd surged round the door with shuffling boots and hoarse, mingled greetings to Cleve who presently came plunging in out of the melee. His face wore a flash of radiance. His eyes were like diamonds. Joan thrilled, and thrilled, at sight of him. He was beautiful, yet there was about him a more striking wildness. He carried a gun in one hand, and in the other, an object wrapped in his scarf. He flung this upon the table in front of Kells. It made a heavy, solid thump, the ends of the scarf flew aside, and there lay a magnificent nugget of gold, black and rusty in parts, but with a dull yellow glitter in others. "'Boss, what do you bet against that?' cried Cleve, with an exulting laugh. He was like a boy. Kells reached for the nugget, as if it were not an actual object, and when his hands closed on it, he fondled it and weighed it, And dug his nails into it and tasted it. My God, he ejaculated in wandering ecstasy. Then this and the excitement and the obsession all changed into sincere gladness. Jim, you're born lucky. You, the youngster born unlucky in love. Why, you could buy any woman with this. Could I? Find me one, responded Cleve, with swift boldness. Kells laughed. "'I don't know any worth so much.' "'What'll I do with it?' queried Cleve. "'Why, you fool, youngster, has it turned your head too? "'What'd you do with the rest of your dust? "'You've certainly been striking it rich.' "'I spent it, lost it, lent it, gave some away, and saved a little. "'Probably you'll do the same with this. "'You're a good fellow, Jim.' "'But this nugget means a lot of money, between six and seven thousand dollars.' You won't need advice on how to spend it, even if it was a million. Tell me, Jim, how'd you strike it? Funny about that, replied Cleve. Things were poor for several days. Dug off branches into my claim. One grew to be a deep hole in gravel hard to dig. My claim was once the bed of a stream full of rocks that the water had rolled down once. This hole sort of haunted me. I'd leave it when my back got so sore I couldn't bend. But always I returned. I'd say there wasn't a darn grain of gold in that gravel. Then, like a fool, I'd go back and dig for all I was worth. No chance of finding blue dirt down there. But I kept on, and today, when my pick hit what felt like a soft rock, I looked and saw the gleam of gold. You ought to have seen me claw out that nugget. I whooped and brought everybody around the rest was a parade now i'm embarrassed by riches what to do with it well go back to montana and make that fool girl sick suggested one of the men who had heard jim's fictitious story of himself dug or stole is all the same boom the imperturbable Golden. kells turned white with rage and cleave swept a swift and shrewd glance at the giant sure that's my idea declared cleve i'll divide it as we planned you'll do nothing of the kind retorted kells you dug for that gold and it's yours well boss then say a quarter share to you and the same to me and divide the rest among the gang no exclaimed kells violently joan imagined that he was actuated as much by justice to cleve As opposition to Golden. Jim Cleve, you're a square pard if I've ever seen one, declared Pierce admiringly. And I'm here to say I wouldn't have a share of your nugget. Nor me, spoke up Jesse Smith. I pass too, said Chick Williams. Jim, if I was dying for a drink, I wouldn't stand for that deal, added Blicky, with a fine scorn. These men and others who spoke or signified their refusal. Attested to the living truth that there was honor even among robbers. But there was not the slightest suggestion of change in Golden's attitude or those back of him. Share and share alike for me, he muttered, grimly, with those great eyes upon the nugget. Kells with an agile bound reached the table and pounded it with his fist, confronting the giant. So you say, he hissed in dark passion, you've gone too far, Golden. Here's where I call you. You don't get a gram of that gold nugget. Jim worked like a dog. If he digs up a million, I'll see he gets it all. Maybe you loafers haven't a hunch what Jim's done for you. He's helped out our big deal more than you or I. His honest work has made it easy for me to look honest. He's supposed to be engaged to marry my daughter. That, more than anything, was a blind. It made my stand. And I tell you that stand is high in this camp. Go down there and swear Blight is Jack Kells. See what you get, that's all. I'm dealing the cards in this game. Kells did not cow Golden. For it was likely the giant lacked the feeling of fear, but he overruled him by sheer strength of spirit. Golden backed away stolidly, apparently dazed by his own movements. Then he plunged out the door and the ruffians who had given silent but sure expression to their loyalty tramped after him reckon that starts to split declared red pierce suppose you'd been in jim's place flashed kells jack ain't saying a word you was square i'd want you to do the same by me But fetchin that girl into the deal kell's passionate and menacing gesture shut pierce's lips He lifted a hand, resignedly, and went out. Jim, said Kells earnestly, Take my hunch. Hide your nugget. Don't send it out with the stage to bannock. It'll never get there, and change the place where you sleep. Thanks, replied Cleve, brightly. I'll hide my nugget, all right, and I'll take care of myself. Later that night, Joan waited at her window for Jim. It was so quiet that she could hear the faint murmur, Of the shallow creek. The sky was dusky blue. The stars were white. The night breeze, sweet and cool. Her first flush of elation for Jim having passed, she experienced a sinking of courage. Were they not in peril enough without Jim finding a fortune? How dark and significant had been Kells's hint. There was something splendid in the bandit. Never had Joan felt so grateful to him. He was a villain yet he was a man what hatred he showed for gulden these rivals would surely meet in a terrible conflict for power for gold and for her she added involuntarily with a deep inward shudder once the thought had flashed through her mind it seemed like a word of revelation then she started as a dark form rose out of the shadow under her and a hand clasped hers jim and she lifted her face joan joan i'm rich rich he babbled wildly shh whispered joan softly in his ear be careful you're wild tonight. i saw you come in with the nugget i heard you oh you lucky jim i'll tell you what to do with it darling it's all yours you'll marry me now sir do you take me for a fortune hunter i marry you for your gold never joan "'I promised,' she said. "'I won't go away now. I'll work my claim,' he began excitedly. And he went on so rapidly that Joan could not keep track of his words. He was not so cautious as formerly. She remonstrated with him, all to no purpose. Not only was he carried away by possession of the gold and assured of more, but he had become masterful, obstinate, and illogical.' He was indeed hopeless tonight. The gold had gotten into his blood. Joan grew afraid he would betray their secret, and realized there had come still greater need for a woman's wit. So she resorted to a never-failing means of silencing him, of controlling him. Her lips on his. End of Chapter Fourteen